0: This is drummer, Steve Smith, and you are listening to Talking Blues.
1: So, based on everything I've read about you, I get the impression that you were into the drums at a very early age in your
0: life. I started playing drums at nine years old, uh, I mean when I was two my my folks got me a little toy drum set but that really didn't last very long, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I beat it up pretty quickly. But when I was in the fourth grade, I was offered the opportunity to choose an instrument and be in the school band and the instrument that I chose was the snare drum. So it wasn't a drum set, it was starting out just with a snare drum, and the year was 1963. At that time, um, my parents found me a local drum teacher, a private teacher, which turned out to be a really uh, fortuitous event because my teacher was uh, very, very good for me for, for quite a long time. So I studied, his name was Billy Flanagan in Brockton, Massachusetts. I grew up in Whitman, Massachusetts. It's a little town south of Boston. And I took lessons from my teacher, Billy Flanagan, from the time I was in the fourth grade until I graduated high school. Wow. And that was a weekly lesson. Very organized, and there would be it's i started um, learning how to read music and learning how to hold a drumstick all simultaneously so so uh, the idea was you know here's a drumstick, here's how you hold it, and this is a quarter note on a page, and this is a measure, and there's you know four four time and 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 so my Orientation and introduction to music was quite organized, disciplined, and and in a way like a, I would call it a traditional way of learning from, you know, from a certain point of view, um, that when young drummers wanted to play drums in that time, I was talking about 1963 or maybe earlier or maybe up until a few years after that it was typical to study with a, a good local teacher who was grounded in jazz fundamentals because drum teachers at that time were jazz drummers for, you know, for the most part. It was before uh, I had you know, heard of the Beatles was, was a year later and, and then the advent of the popularity of rock and roll came later.
1: I wonder at the age of nine, um did you love did you like jazz
0: no not yet i hadn't really discovered jazz at the age of nine but what i did like were the marching bands that i would see in you know in the u.s at the on the fourth of july parades and uh the feel of the bass drum and the, and the snare drum i remember being like five or six and just Thinking that was such an exciting experience. My parents did have some big band records, uh, like Benny Goodman with Gene Krupa, and and uh, various albums like that. So I had heard jazz, but when I studied with my teacher Billy Flanagan, he was he was into the big bands because he had played in the big bands. Like in the '60s, he was probably in his '60s. You know so he had played in the bands in the 30s and the 40s and uh, and introduced me to that music and i fell in love with that so i when i was going to concerts and my parents brought me when i was in seventh and eighth grade they took me to see buddy rich and then eventually i you know when i got my driver's license at 16 i'd go to, to see woody herman or stan kenton um Maynard Ferguson and Count Basie. So so I loved the big bands coming up. And eventually, um, of course, being in high school from 1968 to 1972, I discovered Jimi Hendrix, Cream and Led Zeppelin and, and those British bands. Interestingly, for me, before that, before Jimi Hendrix and Mitch Mitchell on drums, I, I couldn't really relate to the to the basic playing of rock music. So, so my first you know, when I first heard the Beatles or the Stones or Dave Clark Five, it didn't it didn't do much for me because I was so listen, you know, I was still listening. From a drummer perspective, from a jazz perspective, didn't do much for me. Because but when I heard simple? Mitch Mitchell, that was a different story because Mitch Mitchell sounded to me like he's a jazz drummer playing with this amazing guitar player. And I could relate to that. And I could relate to Ginger Baker. And I could relate to John Bonham and Ian Pace. And Carl Palmer and you know the drummers that I heard that had very much you could really hear their jazz fundamental uh, roots.
1: Did you play any rock at that point? I guess not.
0: Yeah, you know, while of course while I was in high school, I I did everything from uh, playing local rock bands, original bands, cover bands, where we would play like Vanilla Fudge and Rascals and 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 Grand Funk Railroad and Zeppelin and, you know, all all of the tunes that were popular at the time. And I was buying rock records, but I played in some big bands at that time. I played in the Bridgewater State College big band, even though I was in high school. So, you know, it was a college band, but they needed a drummer and they recruited me. And I was pl- I joined the musicians union and I was playing in a circus band, <laughs> so I was and I was playing weddings, what they call in the Boston area, GB gigs, general business. So I'd play with an accordion player and a clarinet player and me, and because the accordion player would play the bass and we'd play weddings and and I and I did you know bar mitzvahs and oh I just just anything and everything. I did was you, involved in.
1: At what point did you know that this is what you were going to do?
0: I knew that it was what I wanted to do very early on. I I never considered doing anything else. I, I actually identified myself as a musician at a pretty young age, probably by the time I was in seventh or eighth grade. I just thought of myself as a musician. So I never... I never had a struggle of deciding oh should I go into music (laughs) yeah I just it was a given It just somehow felt like it felt like the right thing to do.
1: When you went to Berkeley. What were you hoping to get out of attending that school and what did you hope to
0: come out of it with. At at the time again so that was I went to Berkeley starting in 1972 and I wanted to study jazz, and at that time, in the U.S. there were, I remember there was four schools you could go to that had jazz, and that was it. It was Indiana University, and Miami, and North Texas State, and Berkeley, (laughs) and that was it. Uh, Every other school was studying, you would have to study classical music, it's not like today where you know there's jazz programs all over the place, you know it's 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 easy to find a jazz program at a college level now, but back then it wasn't and and of course Berkeley college of music was local, it was 25 miles away so for the first year even I didn't I didn't even stay in the dorm I just commuted from my parents house so. Um, so it seemed natural for me to go there. Uh, and I, I had, I knew a lot of great jazz musicians had gone there, so I, I just wanted to go there and and see what and learn and develop as a musician.
1: Was classical music of any interest to you?
0: No, um, I, it wasn't. I, it, it, not. I had, I had not really listened to classical music at that time. So.
1: You're in Berkeley, you're studying jazz. Um, What kind of jazz are
0: you focusing on? Because this is an interesting time. It it is a really interesting time. And one of the, and and I feel so fortunate that to have come up at that time, the the music that we as students were enamored with and working on in those years, I would say was Miles Davis, the Miles Davis group of the 60s with Tony Williams and Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter and Wayne Shorter or George Coleman, even before that, like the album Four and More was a transformative album for me as a drummer, because now I had, I made a lot of transitions, especially during that first year of Berkeley. I went from being more, more focused on big, when I came into Berkeley, I was very focused on big bands. And then I discovered, small groups as you know as they were referred to there you know small groups and and starting with the the miles davis group of the 60s so in a way it wasn't you know if you if you think about it time-wise it was not a lot of that music wasn't even 10 years old yet right it was still pretty pretty fresh and then uh the music of john coltrane with elvin jones and mccoy tyner and Jimmy uh, Garrison so that music was very popular and the other jazz form that was very popular at Berkeley specifically was music that was on the ECM label and it's because Gary Burton had such a large presence at Berkeley mm-hmm. and and he was recording for ECM and there, and there were uh, a lot of artists that that just appealed to me and to the to the student body. And there was a certain kind of playing style that that was associated with the ECM records, kind of a very airy, open, sound and Pat Metheny had just made his first album, Bright Side's Life with uh, Bob Moses and Jaco Pastorius and there were Eberhard Weber albums and there were Ralph Towner records and John Abercrombie's first album, Timeless with Jack DeJohnette and Jan Hammer was a huge influence at that time. So, So that was going on. And that's the way many of us at school were playing in that in that style but what was going on just down the street at Paul's mall in the jazz workshop or symphony hall was what i considered the real forward, you know the the vanguard of what was going on in jazz which was we called jazz rock but it would have been a chick career return to forever my vishnu orchestra had just broken up and and then I saw Billy Cobham's first band playing the music of the album that he made called Crosswinds. It had Randy Brecker and Mike Brecker and, and John Abercrombie. It was an incredible band. And then shortly after that, I saw Tony Williams, new the new Tony Williams Lifetime with Alan Holdsworth and Tony Newton and, and Alan Pasqua. And so that music was, I would say, the cutting edge of jazz. I didn't we didn't call it fusion yet. We just called it jazz rock and thought of it as jazz. I thought of it as jazz, but this is the way people play jazz now. And then, uh, you know, and I saw Miles at that time with Al Foster on drums and Michael Henderson on bass, you know, so they were like rock funk version of, of jazz. So that, I would say it hadn't totally, it was just starting to make an impact on the students. Uh, and then, and during but during my time at Berkeley, I was just taking it all in, taking all that music in. And then, the real upside of being at Berkeley, the 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 teachers were great. You know, like I had Gary Chafee was a private drum instructor who was an innovative teacher. Alan Dawson was was a teacher of mine for a year who was fantastic drum drummer and drum teacher and the courses were good but 50 a good 50 percent of my education just came from the other students that I played with the bass players and the guitar players and the sax players and and we took advantage of of all this all these young great players from around the world coming together and we would jam get together most nights or try to book a little jazz gig and play at some club and just just for the experience of playing. So we developed as musicians during that time by actually just playing music together.
1: Did you have a sense of what a jazz musician's life was like at that point? Like when you, when you graduated or when you finished school, did you have an idea of what you wanted your life to be as a jazz musician?
0: Well, first of all, I, I never did graduate from Berkeley.
1: You were close, though.
0: I got about yeah into my seventh semester, yeah. and and it was actually kind of a thing. Like most people that ended up becoming successful players that went to Berkeley never graduated <laughs> because they end up getting a gig before they graduate, and, right. and that was the, and and that did happen to me. Uh, I. I was playing a lot while I was at Berkeley with a bass player named Jeff Berlin, and Jeff Berlin got a call from Jean Luc Ponty to be his bass player at an audition for drummers in New York City. So Ponty needed a drummer, and he needed a bass player to to play with the drummers, and he he hired Jeff Berlin uh, to come. To, to New York and play bass with him at the drummer auditions. Well, Jeff recommended that I audition, and which was, you know, you needed, you, you couldn't just show up. So so he told Jean-Luc's manager, you know, that this guy should audition. So I got an invitation to come to New York. I drove down from Boston, and uh, it was a cattle call audition, and I, there was probably seven or eight drummers, and we all went in one at a time and, and audition. And I ended up getting the gig, so um, so I. That's when I left Berkeley, and it was, I think it was October. It was October, or possibly early November, but I can't remember exactly of 1976.
1: So I would imagine this would have been an ideal gig for you to do that rock fusion, rock jazz, with John Ponty.
0: It was. And you asked me like your earlier question, like when I, you know, w- what was the kind of career that I wanted to have, you know, leaving Berkeley and the kind of career I envisioned was that of a employable sideman, You know, somebody that would get a call to, to play with good players, you know, great, great musicians and just to go out and make a living playing music and mainly playing jazz but I was you know very open-minded but my focus was jazz so but but I wasn't thinking that I'd be playing fusion I thought more I would more be playing straight ahead something more like straight ahead jazz Uh, so when I did get a call from to do the Ponty audition and got the gig then I then I like did I started to get into what it took to really play jazz rock fusion drums so that was an adjustment to go from more like big band small group small drum set you know that that kind of playing to playing with Jean-Luc which required a more muscular approach he eventually asked me to buy a big double bass drum set uh, which I did in January 1977 I bought my first sonar drum set with two 24-inch bass drums and three rack toms and two big floor toms, and and started really getting into that style that was, in I would say, largely pioneered by Billy Cobham. But I also had other role models that I truly loved and modeled myself after. The drummer that followed Billy Cobham with the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and Narada Michael Walden was one of my favorite drummers and as it turned out Narda's was playing in what you know known as Mahavishnu 2 and the and the violinist was Jean-Luc Ponty and the bass player was Ralph Armstrong who <laughs> ended up being the bass player with with Jean-Luc so so there was a, a, a big connection there between me studying how Narda p- played the music of Mahavishnu and I could directly apply that to my gig was Jean-Luc Ponty, and I also had you know other favorite drummers of that genre were Lenny White and his work with uh, Chick Corea and Return to Forever and also Lenny White's own band because they ended up Lenny White ended up opening up a lot of gigs for Jean-Luc so I saw him play a lot the other band that opened up for Jean-Luc a lot was, was the Pat Matheny group the original group with Mark Egan on bass and Danny Gottlieb on drums and Lyle Mays and um but that's style of playing I was a mo- lot more familiar with because a lot of us were playing a similar kind of style uh, at the Berkeley College of Music
1: so how easy was it for you to learn how to play the double bass was that the first time you started playing the double bass drums
0: yes it was wow <laughs> so it just it's just a natural like I could listen to what Billy Cobham did or listen to what Narda did and I could, I could just figure out how to do it. I, I think this is where, you know, when I do interviews like this, uh, I, I have to refer back to the way I learned how to play the instrument was deeply into fundamentals and when, when, when you learn an instrument and really get into the fundamentals, so, so fundamentals of drum set playing, and especially at that time I learned, is playing the jazz ride cymbal beat, spang, spang, alang, spang, and then keeping that constant while playing uh, different rhythms with the bass drum and the snare drum and not interrupting that jazz ride beat. And and it's triplet based, it's swung, you know, it has a it has a a groove to it that that all US music was based on up until a certain point where the straight eighth note concept got introduced. But before that, everything was swung. So I learned you know, how to play the drums from that fundamental point of view of a jazz drummer. Plus, I learned all the rudiments so I had good hand technique. And when you have those kind of fundamentals, all you have to do after a while is just be able to, to hear something and you can do it. It's not that much of a stretch it's not, you definitely have to focus and practice certain, certain things to work out the coordination and the the concept but but in a, in a large way, most of the work had been done in my high school years. Most of that work of learning how to play the instrument had been addressed in my, you know, junior high to high school years.
1: I just, I, I just picture your left foot or your left leg to be controlling the hi-hat and, and mastering that. And then all of a sudden you're introducing a second bass drum. That your left leg has to do, and I would think that that's got to be quite an adjustment.
0: It is it is an adjustment, but when you play the double bass drum you don't play it all the time right, you just right. play it occasionally. Uh, and so my you know, and I went through a, a, a transition of really training myself how to play the double bass drum from the ground up when I first started playing it I. And this is really drummer talk, but I was leading with the left foot, meaning like if you were playing like sixteenth notes and like one e and a two e and a those downbeats, the one and two and I would be playing those with my left foot because my left foot was used to doing that to play the hi hat, right. and I play all the upbeats with my right foot. You know that was the easiest way to do it, and there are a lot of drummers that actually play double bass that way. For me, that after a while it stopped making sense because up up top um, uh, with my hands i was playing mainly right lead i'd start a fill with the right hand and then if i was had you know the right hand ended a fill on the downbeat but it was my left foot it, it tended to feel a little awkward so i i went through a transition of training myself to play the double bass drum leading with the right foot so then it became something separate it wasn't just moving my left foot from the hi-hat to the bass drum and playing the same way i would play with a hi-hat i you know actually took it on as a as a task to to teach myself but i didn't do that for a couple years later so i like during during the years with pont or the year it was just a little over a year with Ponty. i i didn't do that i still played with the left lead on the on the double bass drum
1: so you come out of school and now you're playing with Jean-Luc Ponty who at that point was starting to really happen like that album that you played on and afterwards
0: like he was a big deal when i first started with Jean-Luc the first tour we played clubs and and then shortly after that he started to play theaters and that's a pretty big transition going from a like say a 200 to 300 seat club to a 1500 or a 2000 seat theater but he uh, he was selling those theaters out also a testament to you know how popular jazz rock fusion was in those days Al Dimiola was was filling up theaters and John McLaughlin's you know different groups at that time was filling up theaters as well so um yeah there was this beautiful period where that that music was quite popular.
1: What did you learn from that experience playing with Jean-Luc?
0: Yeah. I learned, you know, how to, how to get that big rock sound on a drum set, because, you know, I, I had not, I didn't have to do that before. Most of the gigs I were playing were in smaller clubs. So, and, and with, musicians that were mainly acoustic playing acoustic instruments like acoustic piano acoustic bass saxophone so I had to really control my overall volume level to not blow them off the stage, you know, so, <laughs> so I, I had a, 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 a wide range of dynamics, but I, and I could play very soft, but I never really had to play it loud and with Ponty that band was loud he was loud the guitar player was loud the bass player everything was coming through amps and 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 they were just discovering what it was like to plug into a big amp and and turn it up so you know so I I started playing louder and that that you know and learning and playing all this fast fusion ideas or odd time signatures I was comfortable with all that that's how I got the gig because he had me read music, he had me play in seven, he had me play in five, and I could, I could do that, but to do it night after night, at a highly consistent level, that was a transition, because I had gigs before, but I never was on tour for the better, most, you know, the better part of a year before, and we toured, Ponty toured a lot, and so I learned how to be consistent, I learned how to play a a great show night after night after night and not, not wait just for inspiration to hit to have a good night.
1: How does one do that though? Is it, is it, I mean, obviously it's discipline.
0: Good question. Um, repetition of, of similar phrases and parts is, is one way. Like be, coming from the mindset of being an improvising jazz player, you know there's an aesthetic you want to be fresh every night, and you want to really be able to to sound like you've never played this idea before and maybe you never had and and all of a sudden it some new idea comes out, but when i'm playing. Uh, jazz rock with those musicians and wanting to sound very consistent night after night. I did find that I would repeat myself. I would play, I knew like from the night before, oh, this is going to work really well on this song. So I'm going to rely on that to do a great job and to improvise. I might use some of the same phrases in my solo. So I learned that it, it wasn't a crime, so to speak, to, to have certain phrases and licks that I relied upon and developed a vocabulary. And, and that's what I wasn't aware of is how how players had really developed jazz players, especially a big vocabulary over time, and it was okay to repeat themselves. So for instance, like if you listen to and I'll just name like one of my favorite jazz drummers, Max Roach. Okay, so Max mm-hmm. Roach had a band with Clifford Brown and you and you can hear there's recordings Max Roach with Clifford Brown, take one. And they'll they'll play a tune and and it'll be on the record but now there's like the bonus tracks and you could hear take three and take four right he had played a lot of the same stuff on all those other takes and i could you could hear okay that you know charlie parker would would play similar phrases in in the same part of a of a tune like what you know it, you could hear that more these days because of all the re-releases of these albums with bonus tracks so it's not like it hadn't been going on I just didn't really know about it (laughs) you know but so I started to develop this like larger vocabulary and then uh, felt okay about repeating myself or playing something that was familiar because then there would be the occasional breakthrough where truly inspiration would hit and something beautiful and new would happen and, I, and that I find that is continues to this day. So my vocabulary has built over time. I have a large vocabulary of phrases and ideas and concepts. And if I'm uninspired, I may rely on some of those, but then generally I find I break through to the flow and get into this place where I can improvise and, and the ideas just start to happen and flow one idea after the other and and break through into that place that I wanted to break through to when I was a student but you know but I was too young and immature and also didn't have a wide enough uh vocabulary yet I was just starting out
1: well it's interesting because the next step if I'm not mistaken is you joined Ronnie Montrose's band yes which is more rock that and, was
0: totally rock Yeah. and
1: probably less improvised or I mean I... actually
0: I could I it's not totally rock it's not exactly right it was so Ronnie Montrose had a band called Montrose that was a, mm-hmm. that was a rock band that with Sammy Hager on vocals and Denny Carmassi on drums and Phil Bill Church. Anyway, it, it, great it, band. Yeah. But that band was like that was like a very hard rock. Band. Mm-hmm. They were in some ways the, the American version of Led Zeppelin or something. They were yeah. a really good band. But Ron, Ronnie Montrose wanted to do a solo tour. And so this—that's what—and and that's what I did with him. Just instrumental uh, rock, but he wanted there to be some you know, freedom in the drumming. He because in in some ways his his concept was loosely modeled after Jeff Beck, who has, was touring with Simon Phillips, you know, and they were they were playing instrumental jazz rock, right. and. Um, And that's what Ronnie Montrose wanted to do so he wanted a drummer like me versus like a a more straight rock drummer he wanted a fusion kind of drummer. And so I auditioned for that gig and got that gig and then we ended up touring well I stayed with him for eight months seven or eight months and then, but the first three months of my work with Ronnie was we were opening for journey for for Journey's first headline tour. That's how you met
1: Neil Sean and the rest of the band members. And that's probably what led you to join Journey at one point.
0: Yes. So we did. Yeah, we did a, it was Journey's first headline tour. Steve Perry had just joined the band shortly before that they recorded the album Infinity and it was the tour for Infinity. And, um, Journey had been together for five years four years without a lead singer, was, except for Greg Raleigh was singing <laughs> some of the tunes, but they did a lot of instrumental music. And and so when Perry joined, they did the album Infinity and did this headline tour. And interestingly, it was playing some of the same theaters that I had just played with jean Luke. So their first tour as a headliner, they were playing 1,500 to 3,000 seat theaters. And the opening act of the three-band package was Van Halen who played 35 minutes and then uh, Ronnie Montrose with me in the middle and then Journey probably did 90 minutes, you know, after that. So I, I enjoyed being on that tour and watched all the bands. I watched Van Halen pretty much every night. I watched Journey every night. And it was very interesting for me. I was 23 years old, you know, pretty young kid and had not experienced anything of like, you know, rock and roll as far as a lifestyle. And Jean-Luc, Jean-Luc, it wasn't rock and roll, but in a way it was the beginning of that because it was the first time I played with a group that had uh, like a light show and a big PA system you know he he, his production was more or less rock and roll kind of production and then you know being on that tour with Ronnie Montrose and with Journey that it was more of that and so it was all very exciting and fun and very interesting for a young young budding musician to experience
1: well and then Then you get asked to join Journey. I don't know if it was a rehearsal audition process or they just asked you. But in a very short period of time, you're you're working a lot and you're playing with pretty decent people.
0: Yeah, I was. I mean, first of all, I was working a lot. Even as a student, I was working a lot. But yeah, I was getting very good sit gigs. At a
1: different level, at a higher level.
0: At a different level, right. You know, coming right out of Berkeley. Um so yeah that was I you know and again I had you know I had good fundamentals I could read music like not that every gig I had to do you know I had to read music but but having those qualifications let's say it made it easier for me to find good work as a sideman but the but the at by you know, after the tour was over, a few months later, I did get a call from Herbie Herbert, who was Journey's manager, asking me to come to San Francisco and start to play with the band. So there was no audition, but it was just come and start rehearsing and start playing. So maybe maybe there was an audition that I didn't know about, <laughs> you know, I don't know. but it, But there was no official. Auditioned and there was no, there were no other drummers asked to join the band, you know. So it was just a question of, you know, they wanted me to come and start playing with the band. So I moved. I, I, I had lived moved to L.A. Uh, during 1978 from Boston to, and when I played with Ronnie Montres, I, I had an apartment in L.A. So I l- l- moved out of L.A. and moved to Mill Valley. California like the Marin County and and stayed there and that was 19 uh, September 1978 and essentially lived in Marin County for 28 years after that so it, it was a really great place to live and and then I I did you know make a lot of records very good records with Journey during that time
1: so this guy who's into jazz and who considers them a jazz musician um how and and then your goal was to be a a session player and also to work with different people
0: yeah
1: how do you feel when journey asks you because now journey is a band that's starting on the rise infinity did well and they kept moving up since then but now it's a different gig it's a band gig as opposed to a hired musician gig right What are you thinking at that point?
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of, it's just, I'm following opportunities. It was an opportunity. It sounded musically interesting to play a kind of music that I had listened to, but never really played at a professional level before. I had very little experience working with vocalists. It was mostly instrumentalists that I had played with. I thought steve perry was an amazing singer and i thought neil was a great guitar player and ross a great bass player greg raleigh great on i on keys i thought everyone was was a great musician i liked the music especially like the older music because you know when i first when i heard them play uh during that tour, they didn't have enough material to play all songs with Steve Perry singing. So he didn't sing all night, you know, the whole set. And they played some of the older material, which was an odd time signatures. And So I thought their music was cool. And I just thought it was an interesting avenue to, to follow since they offered me the opportunity. Why not? Why not check it out? Actually, at the time, you know the band was just up and coming, but the band had made four albums for Columbia and they were over a million dollars in debt to Columbia, so they did make me a band member. Uh, but by becoming a band member, I inherited this large overhead, you know. Wow. But I was, I, I, you know, because they had made albums that had not sold to recoupment, you know, those albums yeah, yeah. Had not recouped so until the records recoup you're still in a deficit situation (laughs) and there was tour support and you know money had had been invested in Journey that had to be paid back to Columbia Records so so it wasn't like I was walking into like this great gig there was a lot of money and in fact I think I made you know something like 400 dollars a week playing with Ronnie Montrose and then about 350 a week playing with Journey (laughs) but eventually you know (laughs) Royalties did did start to happen, but but the money wasn't a factor, or it was it was strictly the music. I was following the music, and and the music was interesting. And playing with professional rock musicians just it it just seemed like a very interesting thing to do. I hadn't hadn't really done it, you know. Ronnie Montrose was my first experience with that, and then I I continued on with with Journey. But I,
1: but I wonder, as a drummer, who's, who's used to a lot of improvisation, getting into a band like Journey, which is very song and singer-focused, I presume your drumming had to change quite a bit in, in the way that you, you didn't go all over the place. You had to kind of play the same.
0: Yes, I had to make a very big transition with my drumming.
1: How difficult was that?
0: It, it was not that difficult, but I I had to really think about it and pay attention to what was going on. So the the way that I will describe it is that I became less of an improviser and more of a composer. So I had to come up with drum parts that were part of the song. And so so I had to think compositionally more than keeping keeping a time feel as a jazz musician I'm thinking about keeping a feel a time feel and there may or may not be repetition in that feel you know it could could be like if straight ahead straight ahead jazz would be no repetition it's pretty much you know improvising the entire chorus after chorus of a song jazz rock is somewhere in the middle like you know, I might play an exact beat for beginning of a Jean Luc Ponty song, and then once it goes into the improvisation, there's there's less of the beat and more of a feel. And but with with Journey, pretty much everything became about a part, a drum part. And so I would, I had just applied myself to you know listening to charlie watts more and, and ringo and john bonham and how they composed great parts for the music they were playing and i could apply that but but i also had just a an intuitive idea of how to do it you know i could i just could do it in in a basic way and and on top of all of that steve perry was a drummer before Uh, he's you know a singing drummer so he actually could give me a lot of pretty clear advice and when in total doubt he would just sit down at my drums and say this is what i need in order to to do what i need to do and play you know a certain groove and and that was really helpful to me you know i found i found his input to be extremely helpful because he is truly one of the greatest singers of all time really Mm -hmm. you know especially in retrospect i thought he was great then but now it's like (laughs) he's even he's you know pretty amazing singer and his sense of time and phrasing was and is phenomenal and so he so in order to do the kind of phrasing that he needed to do, and a lot of it was based off of his love for Sam Cooke. So if you you know really listen to Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson, you'll hear where Steve Perry comes from. And those singers were very elastic with the beat. They didn't sing everything straight on the beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And so his, but he was very conscious of where he put his phrasing. And a lot of times it would be very far behind the beat but for him to be able to have the freedom and flexibility he needed he needed you know some pretty in the groove what he wanted was r&b infused rock drumming and i was able to do that i was able to bring that to the group
1: i've seen some of your videos where you talk about parts you play in songs like separate ways yes i mean there's a lot of thought that goes into that and now that once you recorded it then live, you pretty well have to redo that every time, right? Yes. So, is that a difficult thing to get used to when you're when you're not used to doing that?
0: Yeah it it was a it was a transition. I wouldn't call it difficult. It was it was more of just being really aware of what the gig required. Here, it, it, but where where. Um, where I went with it was that I needed to address my desire for creativity. And my creativity before that took, took on the idea of filling up a lot of space or being free to interact with the soloists, things like that. Uh, with Journey, I could do a little bit of that. Let's say, we, you know, at the end of a song, we'd stretch out on a guitar solo, and we could take off uh, in, at times like that, and and I could get into that kind of creativity. But mainly my creativity went to coming up with the most interesting and clever drum parts that I would could come up with that would not necessarily draw your attention to them, but were interesting for me to think of and play. And so that's where a lot of like the nuance of the drum parts that went in into the Journey music that it's sometimes it's straightforward. And you know, the best thing for the song is very straightforward, basic kind of playing. But other times I could come up with pretty interesting and clever parts and they would work.
1: I I don't know if this is fair thing to say, but when I last saw you around 2016, 2017 with Journey, I heard a, a jazz drummer, more of a jazz drummer than I remember seeing you during the, the earlier years. Is that a fair thing to say?
0: Yes, it probably is. Um, my jazz drumming has just grown so much over the years. And, and in a way, my rock drumming has. And I've figured out ways of uh, making, making them work harmoniously over the years
1: but but when i would have seen you in the 80s i don't remember thinking oh he's a jazz drummer i I remember thinking he's a heavy rock drummer how did you become that heavy rock drummer from that jazz background
0: oh just simply by doing it just being in that in that band and playing that music every night and, and I was playing the drums really loud and thinking of playing hard. You know, I was thinking that this is something I needed to do, learn, you know, play the drums loud and hard and get a big sound and generate a lot of excitement. And, and I did that, you know, and, and, you know, years later, I figured out how to, how to play that music without doing all of that without playing loud and without playing hard and and just you know so just to do some fast forwarding is is I had to readdress my technique after after journey after leaving journey in 85 because I had. adjusted my playing so it worked in that environment like in the studio and live. But then I started to play with Steps Ahead right after that. So I, like, by being in Journey and playing that music, it, it, it scratched that itch to play and be in rock and roll and play rock and roll. <laughs> right. And I didn't feel like I needed to do that anymore. And and but I was offered the opportunity to be in Steps Ahead, which was one of my favorite jazz groups, and had you know many of my own favorite musicians all in one band. You know so. <laughs> Uh, but the range of uh, dynamic range that I needed to play to be fun- really functional in that band, I was playing too loud all the time when I first started playing in that right. band. So, and and so I eventually found a drum teacher named Freddie Gruber that was able to help me readdress my technique and and play in such a way that I could get the biggest sound that I wanted without. Uh, hurting myself and without playing too loud all the time, and and also being able to play much softer than I had ever played before. So by you know studying with him, a lot of things happened. But one, some of the things I could describe happened is my dynamic range increased, you know by by a large degree, and an increase by being able to play much softer. But still with intensity and, and being young, many times it's easy to confuse intensity and volume, you know, and they don't need to, you don't need to play with volume to, to have intensity. You need focus and density and, you know, and a, and a, and a good sound and, and you can you can play in a way that's compelling that you don't necessarily have to play. Really loud all the time, so so I did, and I did finally like. Uh, I got to the to a point technically where I learned I'd never really had to go to eleven anymore, <laughs> you know. To put it in a Spinal Tap right. kind of phrase phraseology is is that if my dynamic ranges from one to ten, one being like super quiet. Most of the time if I ever play loud it'll be like 7 or maybe 8 and I never go beyond. I just won't because because uh I could hurt myself. I'll compromise the sound and then I'll compromise the feel. So so I stay very contained in my playing so uh when and I really got that together and used it with Journey when I made the album with them called Trial by Fire. So when I, I made that record, it was like right in the middle of studying with Freddy Gruber, I had very good control and sound on the drums and I played that whole record playing much in a much lower dynamic range than I had played on the earlier records. But on a record, you never know, you don't know that, you know, because, In the studio, they can, it's all up to the mix, how how the drums come across, you don't have to beat the, you know, the drums Mm -hmm. hard in the studio, you just play and get a good sound. So I realized, well, if I don't have to play them like that in the studio, I don't have to play them like that live either. (laughs) But how,
1: how difficult is it to relearn that instrument? I mean, here's something you've been playing since the age of nine. And you've been playing it throughout. I know that Neil Pert at one point, somebody you worked with, um, decided to change his drumming style and went to another teacher and relearned. He well, went to Freddie
0: Gruber. I introduced him to Freddie Gruber. Oh, that was... Okay, so... But
1: I, I just... It amazes me because you're used to playing a certain way. How easy is it to learn another way of playing?
0: That was a hard transition. That wasn't an easy transition. That took a lot of discipline to to, like readdress my technique interestingly it brought my technique back to how I started like if I see pictures of myself when I was in high school and at Berkeley and I see how I'm holding the sticks it's it's identical to how I hold the sticks now and my original teacher Billy Flanagan gave me very good technique lessons I I kind of did some bad compensating in those years with Journey and then had to go back to where I was. But then Freddy Gruber was able to take, help me take my technique to new levels because of his expertise and insight into the mechanics of uh, the body and, and the way physics works and the way the sticks work in space. And you know he was really helpful in me developing a, a better technique. But another like very different than Neil Peart is my most of my gigs uh, from you know from the 90s and the 2000s are not on a big rock stage they've been in jazz clubs. And a lot of them have been with saxophone players and acoustic piano players and so, so I really needed to regulate my overall level and play softer but still have the intensity. So, so for years, that's, that's how I played live with, you know, with that kind of awareness and balance that if I'm playing with a group, for instance, Buddies Buddies, it was a group made up of alumni of the Buddy Rich Band with Steve Marcus on tenor and Andy Fusco on alto sax and Mark Soskin on piano. You know, I, I have to really make sure that I'm not, playing too loud. And that's okay. You know, I can do that. So I've, I learned how to play with that intensity without playing loud. If I was, if I had never, if I had only played in Rush, for instance, the way Neil did, that would be really hard to really decide to change your playing and then still only be playing on a big rock stage, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a pretty, in a full, a band that's full on, you know, rock like that. So, so I, I had taken myself out of that genre. I still made rock records. So I still enjoyed playing on records that where I used my rock drumming expertise. But I didn't want to go on tour doing that. You know, I just, going on tour, I only wanted to play with good jazz musicians. Because it was, it's just more fun. It's just right. a lot more fun and more interesting.
1: But what was it like to join a band like Journey, who were a million dollars in debt, and to reach the success that they did? I mean, through the seven albums or whatever you played with. I mean, when you look at Escape and Frontiers, I mean that band was huge, right? And and you saw it from from a band that was playing two thousand theaters to stadiums.
0: It seemed at the time gradual transition where each records sold more. Each tour, we played bigger venues. And it, you know, it ended, I think, the Frontiers Tour 1983. We were playing multiple days at 60,000 seat outdoor stadiums. There was only two other people, you know, the police and Bruce Springsteen and Journey. During that time, the three, those three acts were were playing that size venue, and of course the Rolling Stones. You know there were a few others, but uh, but our contemporaries, let's say, were you know the the Police and Bruce Springsteen, as far as bands that were putting out uh, n- new music at that point. So that you know that was it. It seemed gradual to me being in the midst of it at the time, but, and somehow I acclimated to it. <laughs> you know, some, somehow I acclimated to it, but if I, you know, but if I step back and really see you know, from my perspective, I never bought into rock and roll as a lifestyle, as a, as a thing other than the music. So I, I you know, it's like, it, it wasn't a lifestyle, or that I aspired to, even as a Berkeley student, you know, or even in the midst of it, uh, it was interesting to do it. But I, I saw it more like it was the music. I could play the music, but I didn't have to live that life.
1: But, but I wonder. I mean, I, I would presume that if I would have met you at Berkeley and said, if you could have anything you want in the musical life, what would it be? Playing major stadiums with a big rock band probably wouldn't have been.
0: It wouldn't have, no, oh, it wouldn't no have list. been on my radar. No, I would have said, like, to play with McCoy Tyner or tour with Herbie Hancock or, you know, do or something like that is probably what I would have said at that time.
1: I don't know if this is a fair question, but did your jazz credibility, was that affected at all because of your time and journey? I don't
0: think, I, you know what? what? I don't, I don't know that I even had much jazz credibility in those years. Okay, you know, I, I, here, here, I don't think so. I really don't think so because um, there was, you know, if like if you look back, like one of my good friends from Berkeley and still to this day is Vinnie Colaiuta. And, you know, we were at Berkeley together, and uh, you know, I just talked to him like two weeks ago, and. He's an amazing jazz and fusion drummer, but he ended up touring with Sting and Jeff Beck, and and and, and in a way, it's like it's in. I think I think there's in Steve Gadd. You know, is a great jazz drummer, but he tours with Eric Clapton. You know, so there's a certain coolness of or something. You know, there's like it's okay to do that. Right, right. It's a, it's okay to. To, to go there. I think the, the, the issue that I faced and had to overcome is and maybe this is your question. I'm not but I had to establish myself as a jazz musician after Berkeley I'm sorry after uh, journey as a band leader. You know that the information. yeah that was a difficult transition because uh because for the most part, I had I had some fans, I would say, or notoriety from playing with Jean Luc Ponty, and especially because of that record, Enigmatic Ocean. Mm-hmm. But but I didn't have a big jazz profile because when when I did end up on the cover of Modern Drummer or you know do do inter- interviews, it was because of Journey. So I would say the largest number of my fans knew me from journey and so in 1983 after the frontiers tour i went on tour with vital information to promote my first album that was rough <laughs> because everything was about you know drummer from journey appearing with his own band and that in that And we were not a rock band, you know, that was, it was, we played with a rock attitude and feel at some, in some ways, but it was a, it's a very jazz, jazz rock fusion experience to hear vital information. So, so that was a, that was a, a tough transition that I think I eventually made through a lot of, I made a lot of choices in my, uh, career, like career choices that led to me establishing ident- my identity as a band leader and as a jazz drummer. Being in Steps Ahead was, a, was really helpful. Right. To go from Journey to then playing with Mike Maneri on Vibes and Mike Brecker on sax and Mike Stern, in fact, on uh, guitar, he was, he and I played together a lot at Berkeley, and he's on the first Vital Information record. He's one of the two guitar players, Mike Stern and Dean Brown play guitar on that first album. So, and then, and and Daryl Jones was the bass player for the most part, Victor Bailey was the bass player on some of those gigs, but um, that was extremely good for my credibility. <laughs> Because after that, after I toured with Steps Ahead and did uh, one, did an uh, album and video, I started to win a poll in Modern Drummer called the All Around Drummer. You know, meaning play, you could play pretty much, you know, any kind of music. So that that was the beginning of my transition to be known as an all around drummer or more jazz based drummer, something like that you know, I guess in the end, it doesn't It doesn't matter so much how how people see me. It's just, I want them to come see me when I'm playing a gig with my own band or whatever. It's just come out and see me. It doesn't matter if you want to see the drummer from Journey playing jazz or a jazz drummer playing Fusion or whatever. Just, you know, I want people to come out and come to the gig and enjoy the music. How much practicing do you do these days? I still practice a couple of at least two to three hours a day, six days a week.
1: With the hopes of getting better? What what goes into this?
0: Yeah, it's it's well, there's a lot that goes into it. Like one thing is, you know, I'm I have to learn music pretty often. Uh I'm learning or even relearning. I'm I'm about next week I'm gonna be playing some gigs with vital information. So I have to readdress some of the songs that I haven't played for two and a half years, you know, because of not not touring with, with COVID lockdown. And um, and and then I'm playing five weeks at Birdland Jazz Club in New York City with five different bands. Wow. And each band has a different repertoire, so I'm learning a lot of music. Um, and I practice for maintenance, chops maintenance because having you know a if I have a high degree of technical facility, but it doesn't just stay there by itself you You need to address it, and as I age, I really need to address it because um you know as as you age your reflexes and certain things slow down so it requires maintenance just to you know sort of bite the aging process as well and on top of all that it's fun i enjoy it it's like very it's very th- therapeutic and feels really good to practice
1: was there a point in your life where if drumming wasn't fun or playing wasn't fun
0: not not really no i mean there's a there's a a few Points really early on where, you know, I can remember thinking, oh, I you know, I'm being in high school. Maybe I really didn't want to practice, <laughs> but you know, it, but and but then I would, you know, I just I just would do it, and and I've learned, you know, one of the one of, and going back to like how do you be consistent? That question, and one of the ways of being consistent is by consistently practicing, mm-hmm. because you don't always feel like practicing you may not always feel like practicing but i i make myself do it even if i don't feel like practicing just like when you're on tour and you're playing 60 gigs you may not want to play a gig that night (laughs) but you still have to play a gig that you know so so there's you know you need to be in shape uh of of breaking through the the barrier of maybe not really feeling like it. And then once you, once you break through, then, you know, something takes over the flow starts to take over and you can get into it.
1: It's an amazing path that you've taken and, and, and you've got to play with a lot of amazing people for that little kid who, who played drums at the age of two, who started lessons at the age of nine. When you look back on how, how do you see this amazing journey?
0: Well, I feel extremely fortunate that I've had uh, a life experience that has been as rewarding as it's been in, in, in a lot of ways. Very, you know, very rewarding uh, creatively, emotionally, financially. And it's just in every aspect, it's been a good life. It's taken a lot of work. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. And it, and it, and it keeps, I don't, you know, I have a lot of freedom to do things that I want to do musically, but, you know, but it's, it's also like a, a demanding mistress. <laughs> you know, it requires a lot of work and focus, and, and I just can't let it go for a long time and expect it to be there when I when I'm ready for it. So so in some ways, you know, I'm it's it's also a difficult here's here, you know, it takes a lot of maintenance to keep it up. And then when I do get hired to play music with people in, and it's usually hard music. It requires a lot for me to learn that music. So yes, I have good fundamentals and, and I've you know learned a lot over the years. Uh, but I also am challenged often when I have to learn new music because it may not be easy, and it may take a lot of work, but but've learned I've learned how to do that, a process of how to learn hard music and and then how to and then I need to live up to expectations when people hire me when the audience comes to see me there's there's a high demand that i be (laughs) that i may transport you to some different place (laughs) you know you know that's what people are coming for that's what people are coming to to see live music for they want to be transported they want to go and have an experience that's different than everyday experience
1: well, especially when you have been labeled like the top twenty-five drummers in the history of drums, or you're in the Modern Drummers Hall of Fame, yeah, <laughs> they do expect things, but is it, they is do. Any- and,
0: and I'm saying that's hard, That's not always that easy to deliver. It yes, and so I'm really grateful that I've had this amazing life experience. Yet it's taken a, a lot of work to maintain it, and you know, and to deliver performance after performance and you know but but i love doing it so you know but but sometimes i feel like i just want to set it down (laughs) but but i wanted to not do it for a while you know so (laughs) i did i actually did have a pretty good long break there with (laughs) with the covid
1: and what was it like playing getting back on the drums then after the long break
0: i i mean i never stopped playing but but i stopped performing live yeah um and so now Now what I'm going to do is play gigs, but play a lot less gigs than I used to play. If I look at my calendar, the way it was, you know, it it was too intense, too Mm -hmm. you know, too many gigs, and so now I'm filtering, (laughs) filtering out, and deciding to play good gigs with good musicians but a little bit less because I love being home now. You know, it's like I, I have more fun being home and enjoying time with my wife, Diane, and just like, you know, having that experience. That was one thing about COVID that for me was really great is how nice it is to not always be on tour and, be, mm-hmm. and to be home, it feels really good.
1: When you, when you hear a drum part, is there anything that you can't do
0: at your level of musicianship, I, I... there's lo- lots of things that I that I can't do. I mean, there there, are, yeah. I mean, I can probably play a lot of music and difficult music, but I would play it in my own way. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that I can't do. For instance, like there's ton there's lots tons of these, you know, new metal kind of drumming and new right. metal kind of playing there's just no way I could even get close to that you know but but it's <laughs> thankfully it's not something that is like really appealing to me or I've been haven't really been asked to do but yeah there's a physic there's a physicality to to that kind of playing that you know that I'm pretty blown away with a lot of the drummers that play that super fast mm-hmm. metal and you know there's stuff like that that I can't play I'm not a I'm not a, like a well-versed drummer of like uh, Afro-Caribbean kind of drumming. You know, like, like there's so many great drummers from mm-hmm. Mexico and, and Cuba and South America and, and uh, that play in a certain way that I love, but that's not, uh, I can do it in my, in my own way. It would be like if Art Blakey was playing Cubop as right. they called it, you know, but not in the way that the, the drummers, like say coming out of Cuba play, you know, so there's, and and there there are great jazz drummers, young players, especially that are playing new and interesting ideas that are very different from the ideas that I play. So yeah, there's a lot that I can't play, but uh, you know, but I, and that's great, that's okay. <laughs>
1: Final question. Do you still have goals? Do you have goals at this point? Musical goals?
0: Yes. I want to play uh, with my group, Vital Information. I have a, a new lineup now with Yannick Guzdala on electric bass and Manuel Valera on keyboards. And we are just about to embark on uh, or some, some first dates of you know, playing with that group. We have a tour booked, West Coast tour booked for March, 2023. And now uh, we're gonna start booking East Coast tour in June of 2023. So that's, that's a goal to make a new album, to play with those musicians, to play Vital Information music. I love the, the opportunities that I have to play at Birdland and play you know, tribute to John Coltrane or tributes to Thelonious Monk or Bud Powell, which that's what I have coming up in September and October of 2022. So to continue to do that is, I wanna to continue to, to do that. Uh, the other thing that I love doing is teaching. Uh, I have a lot of videos on Hudson music. I just recently filmed two courses for Drumio. Which is a, a, a drum instructional website. It's based in the Vancouver, Canada area, and and so I have a lot of um, drum teaching information posted there on Drumio. And I just did a week camp in LA called Drum Fantasy Camp, which was extremely fun. And that was with me and Dave Weckel and Simon Phillips and Mark Juliana for wow. you know four of us teachers and and 60 plus students so I I really enjoy that so I want to just continue you know more the the playing that I'm doing and then and to and but to not work too much (laughs) to work enough that it feels satisfying but also you know have a lot of good quality time at home and uh with family and, and, and so that's I guess that that would be my goals at the moment and to stay healthy you know luckily I've taken care of myself and I and cont- will continue to do that and, and hopefully just live a long life
1: Well, <laughs> playing good music I want to thank you. You, you you have brought a lot of joy into my life in, in the music that you've done and the chance to talk to you is a real pleasure
0: so thank you yeah my pleasure it's been good A good interview thank you for that